As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. And you hear this, you know, with static, uh, what's going on? What's the status of the situation? <laughs> what, what's happening? Because he had a lot of cops, you know, tied up. The guy says, well, I don't know. Uh, there, there's a lot of people in this bank making change. And then you hear over the walkie-talkie, are you crazy? I had 12 cops and four dogs tied up in a bank because people are making change. Would well, you get the hell out of there or whatever, you know? So they all left and the uh, bank people didn't know what to do. When are you going to leave? Never until this guy comes down and agrees to negotiate with us. The president agrees to negotiate with us. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I spoke recently with Arnie Graff, former co-director of the Industrial Areas Foundation, a national community organizing network. I find his to be a compelling story of activism, from joining the Congress on Racial Equality in the early 60s to service in the Peace Corps in Africa, to IAF, consulting with Ed Miliband of the Labor Party in England, He's now written a book called Lessons Learned, Stories from a Lifetime of Organizing, in which he tells stories about building power for communities and what universal principles apply. There's a lot to learn from him. So after a quick word from our sponsor, please listen to Arnie Graff about lessons learned from a lifetime of organizing. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Arnie, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. So, Arnie Graff, I was born in New York City, was raised in New York City and its suburbs until I went to school in 1961 at the, it's now the State University of New York at Buffalo. And while I was there, I got involved in the civil rights movement with the Congress of Racial Equality Corps. That was my introduction to uh, to really what I wound up doing most of my life, uh, social action and building organizations, mostly in lower income and working income areas, although now it is, you know, stretched into middle income areas. Uh, but that was my founding experience in CORE. How did you come across CORE? What was your initial role there? Well, I was just a member. I was young. I was about 19. I didn't grow up in a political family. They were Democrats, but they were working people. They didn't uh, get involved in politics. What kind of work did they do? Well, my mother was a secretary and my dad was a salesman. Uh, and then he owned a company and then went back to selling uh, women's handbags. Uh, both uh, grew up in a very poor my mother grew up uh, in and out of welfare, and my dad never finished uh, high school. So their goal was mainly for my brother and I, I have an older brother who's a doctor, was to uh, you know see us get an education and do well, and that was a large part of their their life. I didn't take the direction that they hoped for, but it was all good. What was the attraction to core? Where did that come from? Well, it was a real accident. In my freshman year, I lived in the dormitories, 1961. 
there were only two African-American guys that lived in the dormitory floor. And we had a recreational basketball team. One of the African-American fellows, a fellow named Vernon, and I were on the team. I wasn't socially aware at all about much of anything. After the season, we went to a bar to celebrate, and uh, they wouldn't uh, serve us. I didn't realize what was going on. So I just went to the bar and asked for a couple of pitchers of beer, and the guy told me, you know, if I get rid of the, the N, you know, using the N word to the guy, he would serve us. And I was just sort of stunned. And somewhere along the line, I uh, I don't know why, I just kind of blew up. I lost my temper and started shouting at him. And they had the bouncers removing me. And, and then when I got back to the dorms later, no one would speak to me. Uh, not even the African-American fellow. And the end of the semester turned out that we were just happened to, he was studying and he was in the cafeteria having breakfast and I came down and there was nobody else around. And so I decided, well, I'll probably never see him again. I'm asking what happened and uh, why he wouldn't talk to me. So he told me, you know, that he had to stay away from me because he thought I was crazy and uh, I could get him in a lot of trouble and I might get thrown out of the bar. But if he did what I did, you know, yelling at the bartender, what's the matter with you, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. He would have been probably arrested by the police and put in jail and then uh, thrown out of school and broken his parents' dream. He told me about, you know, how hard his parents worked to get him and his sister to to college and pay for it through working. I think his dad worked three jobs and his mom worked two. It just opened up my mind. I think some people develop a inherent sense of justice. And that sounds like what triggered your upset was just knowing this was just wrong. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, because it wasn't political to me. I wasn't politically oriented. It was just, and I wasn't that close to this fellow Vernon. Everything was segregated then. And so uh, he was always off campus. But he explained all of that to me. And I just thought, what in the hell, you know? <laughs> so how did you come across CORE and decide to become well, a Well, oh, so what happened was uh, a couple of years later in the student union, there was a dance and I went in. And when the band stopped to take a break, three people came on, uh, an African-American man and an African-American woman and a white guy. They said they were from CORE. I didn't even know what CORE was. And that they were part of COFO, which I had no idea. That was the coordinating committee for the Freedom Rights. And I had no idea what that was either. And that they had come up from Mississippi. They were part of CORE, Congress of Racial Equality. They were sent by the leadership of CORE to come to Buffalo to begin to organize in the North because the North was, people think it's just Mississippi, Alabama and all that. But, you know, Northern cities have real problems and are racist and, and Buffalo in particular I never thought about it because I never did much outside of my own fraternity and being on campus. And so uh, Buffalo was particularly bad, they said. But at any rate, they said that. And they said uh, they were going to have a, you know, a meeting. You know, they wanted to see if some students would get involved in helping and developing and working with the core chapter in Buffalo. And it brought back a flood of memories to me, you know, about that incident that happened in my freshman year. This was like in my junior year. And the friends that I was with were saying, oh, that's not true. You know, it's, that's just the South. You know, it doesn't happen here. I got involved. Uh, th- there was um, a leader in core, local, who for whatever reason, because I, I, I don't, like I said, I had no background uh, in social action, even thinking about social justice. For what, some reason, he took, a, he took an interest in me. And he really mentored me. And he taught me. A lot. Mostly he taught me how to control my temper. Because uh, when we would be negotiating with uh, whomever, both at the university level where they weren't hiring African-Americans even to do uh, housekeeping stuff, and then corporations and businesses, I, I, I would just lose my temper. And that you know, was uh, destructive to what we were trying to do. We did a lot of demonstrating. We did a lot. Of, I went to jail you know, things that were disruptive. 
and I could see some of the victories, you know, and it was great, but I also could see the other side. My life was threatened. Uh, it was under a lot of pressure, not just me, but some others too. But I, I didn't know how to take all of that. People following me, uh, people threatening me. I went to the police for protection. I showed them the letters I was getting. They told me, uh, I hope to kill you, you son of a bitch. So I, I was so naive. This is the police. What do you mean? <laughs> they weren't on your side, huh? No, man. <laughs> they, were. they made that pretty clear. They hoped by the end of a year of it, I was really kind of burned out. Not, But I, I didn't want to quit. Most of the people, the white people, that, you know, the university types had quit, had left. I eventually did because the, the, the black power movement came and then, I, you know, we all had to get out. Those of us that weren't black. So th- that seems to have been part of the story of how you become an organizer, right? You yeah, absolutely trace that path for me going forward from there. How does that become what you spend your career in? It was a little circuitous, but I went to the Peace Corps from there and spent two years in a small village in Sierra Leone and had a just a great experience. Another really kind of founding, I call these sort of founding experiences. Core was a founding experience. Peace Corps was a founding experience. Just living in a culture that was so different from anything I, you know, growing up in New York City. We had no water. You know, I remember going to the man that was renting us the hut. I had a roommate. We were teaching at this rural school. I said, sir, there's no water. He said, oh, I'm sorry. And he disappears. And he comes back with a shovel. I just dig a well. <laughs> So it was just so different, you know. I mean, uh, it was just so so different. But that's that must have been very early in the development of Peace Corps. It was. It was found that I, I went in sixty five. I think it started in sixty three. I think we were the third group. It was still Sergeant Shriver was still the director. It was just a phenomenal experience for me, and I was fortunate to be there with a, another Peace Corps person who. Uh, you know, it's turned out to be a lifelong friend. Seems like it takes a lot of courage for a young person to go abroad to another continent to do a new program. Like, how did you make that decision? I know I, I made that really before anything to do with core. I had an adventurous, uh, I don't know, gene or something in me, and my my mother had given me a uh, a map. It was a lamp. That I was supposed to study by when I was in high school. <laughs> the The shade of the lamp was uh, a map of the world. I used to just look at that and wonder what it would be like, you know, to be in one of these places. And my brother was a stamp collector. And he had these beautiful stamps uh, from different countries. It kind of fascinated me. When they started the Peace Corps, I applied. It really didn't come so much from a social justice or anything background. I guess I had a humanitarian side to me of some sort. You know, I mean, I nice to teach in an area that, that, you know, needed help or something like that. It was really, if I'm honest, it was really more an adventurous side. Well, how did it change you? The first thing it did was because when the sun went down, that was it. You know, you, you lit a candle and, uh, you know, or a lantern, and that's what it was. <laughs> I went from huge amount of activity with core and trying to get out of school. So I guess I, I went from a huge amount of activity and emotional stress and anger about what I was learning and confronting. And then my own just formation. It was like a being in a cauldron for me. When I went to the Peace Corps, there was uh, nothing to do after teaching, which was like from eight to one because it got so hot. He stopped at one o'clock. And then that was it. So I really wound up having to think about myself and a chance to reflect on my involvement uh, with CORE and all that took place and me in it, trying to think of why I got involved, why I stayed involved. I had a lot of time to reflect. And then I was, you know, faced with, which I wanted to be, such a, you know, a culture that was so foreign to me as I was to them. And then trying to understand 
their values, the people who live in the village, compared to my values and really basically about how they looked at things and how they saw things and how I saw things. And I came to realize that, uh, this may sound a little bit like a shibboleth, but as human beings, 80% of us or maybe more are the same. What we want, what we desire, how we look at life, the relationships are very similar and not so different. That was not long after they had independence, gotten independence. That's right. right. Uh, And had that, the politicization around that, reached down to where you were serving? To some degree, yes. I think, you know, a type of disappointment because the English still controlled uh, the mines and they had built themselves a village. It was amazing. And they, they had their own airstrip, so they flew in frozen, you know, steaks and whatever, you know, regular English food. It was such a contrast. They were very aware of it, right? I mean, they, they weren't allowed to shop there. But there was, here was a place that was filled with all kinds of food. And they were eating, you know, one meal a day of rice and, what it, you know, cassava leaves on top of the rice. And all. They didn't know much about what was going on in... Uh, you know, the capital city, they were so far away and there weren't any communications. I mean, obviously they knew there was, there was freedom and there were pictures of Albert Margai, that was the first president. Life hadn't changed too much for them. And so uh, it was a bit of a mixed, you know, proud, but also, you know, our life is the same, you know, it's kind of still ruled by the English. And- After that rather formative experience, you went back to the U.S. and what was the path to the IAF. Uh, thought I wanted to go to school. I went to school of social research, but I, did, I didn't. In sociology, I thought that would give me an understanding of what kind of goes on, or, you know, in a, in a more academic setting. But uh, I, I, I didn't enjoy it at all. And so I dropped out first semester. I taught for a year and a half in the New York City public school system because I was a teacher and got into uh, – disagreements <laughs> uh, at the high school I was teaching at. And it was terrible. It was 46 kids in a classroom. We had been put into a converted uh, school, elementary school that had been closed for 10 years. And it was the high school so crowded, they opened it up. I was teaching ninth grade. You have these big people, 15 years old, because many of them had left back, trying to sit in these you know, tiny chairs. It was and 46 of them, and many didn't speak English. The curriculum made no sense. The English teacher, who was a real good person, because she was supposed to teach Hamlet. It's crazy. With the permission of the principal, uh, permission to spend, uh, we spent the Christmas vacation in the 42nd Street Library trying to uh, come up with a history class that would match with English uh, on the history of uh, Harlem because that's where the kids lived. And they had a lot of pride. The pride that they had was on the block that they lived on. And unfortunately, they sometimes hurt, you know, get gangs and hurt each other, this block versus that block. But they didn't know the history. They didn't know all the great people that had, you know, been born and raised in the world. And our principal was very excited about us being willing to do that. Uh, he was a very good person. And take the, uh, you know, Christmas off and, so we did, and we came up with, I don't know how good a curriculum, but we tried, where you would integrate, you know, English with history. I remember we came into his office about a couple of days before school was supposed to start, because we had given him the curriculum to see if he would approve it. And he was crying. He was literally crying. I thought, oh, my God, you know, maybe he lost somebody in his family or something. So I said, hey, you know, his name was Mr. Fanatucci, really good fellow. Mr. Fanatucci, we can come back, you know. He said, no, 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 I'm, 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 I'm crying over what you've done. But, you know, the people above him wouldn't let him do it. It's, it was one curricula for, you know, the whole ninth grade of New York City, you know. And he felt terrible about it, you know, that we had taken the time off and that we cared enough and so on and so forth. Susan Sussman was the English teacher. He said, I know I'm going to lose the two of you. You're not going to stay doing this, you know. We need good teachers. He was near retirement. And we don't need all the older teachers that are here or cynical and don't care. Or the, you know, younger ones are just going to pass through. 
I decided I want to go back and organize in some kind of way. I'd stayed away from thinking about organizing because to me, I didn't know if I want to go through at least what my experience was, threats and violence. That's what I associated with organizing. I called a friend of mine Buffalo, who helped me navigate to graduate. He told me, why don't you think about social work? I said, well, I don't want to be a social worker. He said, no, some schools of social work teach community organizing. I said, geez, I had no idea. He said, but you know, I'll check with the dean at Buffalo. So he did, and he called me back, and he said, well, the dean said it's too late, but that there's a new program at West Virginia. It's a, called a block placement system. just means you're in school for four months, and then you're in your placement for four months. So I went to West Virginia University. One of the semesters that I wasn't in school, I worked for the welfare rights organization, George Wiley's organization. I found a chapter in Harlan County, Kentucky. I wanted to see what it would be like to live and work in and amongst rural, low-income white people. And that was another eye-opening experience for me because uh, these were rural, poor white people. In terms of injustice, there was a lot of the same dynamic that I had experienced in inner-city Buffalo. Not obviously on race, but the way poor people were treated, the way uh, they were they were punished if they tried to do anything, you know, uh, socially. Uh, they would take, the, you know, uh, free lunch away from their kids or whatever. And I saw how they were treated as former mine workers and all of that. So, and how rough the police were. I was followed by the sheriff all the time. But um, when the placement was over, I, I knew this is what I wanted to do. And I was very lucky. I had a social policy class. And the professor there happened to know Saul Alinsky and uh, told me, uh, want to organize, you know, why don't you go with them? You know, try it. They have a new training institute they put together in Chicago. So I applied there and got in, and that was, has been my career. What did you learn from that Alinsky training? What I learned was how to look at certain things. And, and uh, for example, how to look at a problem and then break it down into something that's issuable instead of just saying, well, this is just racist and, you know, demonstrating against racism. Well, racism is a problem. And so how do you look at something and break it down by issuable? I mean, that you can do something about it. And there's different ways of, of thinking about that. You know, that was great for me because I never, I didn't have that kind of discipline to think in that way. And tactics and strategies, which I, hadn't thought about it in the way that they were teaching. I really enjoyed it. It was really good. Uh, it was good, edu- you know, it was really a good education. And I was there for 10 weeks in Chicago. And so it's 10 days of classroom at the time. It's very different now. And then they assigned us to the one of the two directors. And uh, so that was great being mentored by, uh, his name was Dick Harmon, who had a lot of experience. It was a really good experience for me. So I read your book, which is, called Lessons Learned, Stories from a Lifetime of Organizing. Why did you write it? I had retired at 72. I was one of the co-directors by then of the Industrial Areas Foundation. When Alinsky died, a fellow named Ed Chambers took over as director, and he remained there for many, many, many years. And I thought, you got to make room for other people, you know. Uh, and it was time to move on. And so I did. Uh, and then I had a, a series of illnesses, cancer and stuff like that. And uh, made me kind of uh, reflect, you know, on, on a lifetime, you know, of work and what I had done. And I thought maybe if I could write it up some stories, it would be useful for uh, people who thought that they might want to organize, get them interested, give them a taste. And so I thought, well, maybe this would be a way of uh, enticing or ex- exciting, I hope, or get interest from people who might think about organizing as a career. So I wanted to do that. And then quite honestly, I, I'd always, I always wondered if I could write a book. I uh, wrote, you know, any number of op-ed pieces that were run and whatever, but I didn't think that I, I didn't know if I had a book in me. I was starting to feel better physically, and I thought, well... Let me see if I can do this. So, it's structured 
as just a small number of stories. Generally, you came into a situation that needed someone to sort of provide leadership locally to organize people against a certain kind of injustice. Could you tell one of those stories? Sure. I told five of them in there. So I've been teaching the School of Social Work uh, in San Jose from, from 78 to 80, and I got restless teaching. I don't want to teach it. I wanted to do it. So we came back. We spoke to Chambers, who was then the director. And he wanted me to come back. And so he said, would you go to Baltimore? Because we started there. He said, uh, I have, and it's, it's been a failure. You know, we've just been struggling. And it's the first predominantly African-American city that we've gone back to since uh, we were in Rochester. So we chose this area because for the family reasons. And the organization in Baltimore called BUILD, Baltimore United Leadership Development, had started in 77, 78. The IF had sent people into Baltimore. They'd been invited by the clergy to come in. And uh, it just been a it had been a flop. It just hadn't worked, and the, I guess the organizers weren't able to put it together. And it was on its sort of its last leg. And um, by 1980, and uh, so when I came in, I didn't really have time to do the kind of base building that I, that's required to build real power. I had to. I felt like do it sort of more like a movement. We make a distinction between, you know, uh, community organizing, community organizing, and movement. At any rate, I thought I'd do it more like movement because we didn't have time. I dove in. I did, uh, oh, I don't remember, 250, 300 individual meetings, meeting individual people who their congregations or, or organizations had, had once belonged or still belonged or weren't active to build. And I did those in about uh, eight weeks. I was like a maniac. I learned of various issues that people were concerned about, but we didn't have much of an organization. And uh, also the three key pastors who, you know, were the building blocks, one had retired by the time I got there. He was white. The other two African-American pastors, one was uh, a fellow named Reverend Wendell Phillips, a a great guy. But he... He had already become disenchanted with it and all, wasn't very engaged at all. And then a fellow named Reverend Vernon Dobson, who was beloved in the community, uh, black community. They used to call him father. I mean, he was meant a lot to a lot of people. And he had been involved with the civil rights movement. He knew Martin Luther King, and he had a big church. And But he was already, you know, pretty fed up. I decided of all the various issues that the one I thought, given our strength, but the one that I thought we could take on and win, if I had done something like this when I was organizing Milwaukee, was to take on, you know, the banks redlining. They literally did in Boston. You draw a red line around maps. That's how it's done. Thing, where there was, you know, African-American neighborhoods where they would not, you know, loan any money. I mean, you mentioned that a tiny like one and a half percent of the loans were made in black neighborhoods. Yep. I remember this clearly. It was in, I was there in 80, so you could get the 79 statistics and of the $426 million they had loaned out in the city mortgages. One and a half percent of that went into the black community, which was about 60% of the city. I dealt with this issue before in Milwaukee as an organizer. So I knew the issue and had fought it in Milwaukee uh, so I, at least I was familiar with it. So uh, we got to work on that. I had a little team of six people uh, who, who still had some faith we could do something. And uh, we um, studied it, and uh, the, you know, that's where we got the, uh, the statistics. And then we, we were able to gather about 200 people. And we really got them there just by pleading and begging. <laughs> we didn't have a network much anymore. And Reverend Dobson, who could have brought him there by himself, was kind of down in the, about, you know, the effort because it had been three years of a failure. And he wanted an African-American organizer, and I was, I was white. So it was like, here comes the fourth white organizer to try to, you know, make this happen. And so he wanted to make it happen, but he was very, you know, 
mistrustful of it all and mistrustful of me at first. So thankfully he came to the meeting and we, you know, the leaders did a nice job of laying it out, making it dramatic and so forth. We expected that the next day there would be, you know, reaction from the banks because it got in the newspapers. Uh, we were able to get the press there and uh, there was nothing. Nobody called. I remember sitting there, it was in the basement waiting for this call, you know, something, some reaction. Because in every action, if you don't get a reaction, you know, then it's nowhere. You do an action to get a reaction and we got no reaction. Because it's in the in the reaction that you you can figure out your next step, which really is the first issue of any organization is to get recognition, even if it's bad recognition. They don't like you. That's fine too. You don't expect them to like you. Whatever, but some kind of re, you know recognition. So they they just ignored us. No one had really even heard of the organization, even though it had been around three years. Had been just you know kind of a failure. But I had done something in Milwaukee that had been had worked, and I so I tried it there. I I said, why don't why, look? Why don't we figure out how much money we have in the bank, and then uh, go negotiate as a major customer, as a multi million dollar customer, instead of how they think of us, all poor, you know, African American people, you know, can't harm them in any way. At that time, we only had like ten institutions that were part of it. And I said, but I still bet we have a lot of money because a lot of these, you know, a couple of the Catholic parishes had big schools. Reverend Dobson's church had a very large daycare center, you know, 250 kids, families, I should say. So I knew we were rich, but, you know, I thought it would be good, A, as a, as a tactic, but both internally forget people to, you know, to recognize the amount of money that they had and the potential power they had and, you know, to use as leverage on the banks. So at any rate, we had a bank Sunday in the 12 or 13 churches that belonged. The pastors asked people to fill out uh, how much money they had in the bank, what bank they had. And not, this was all done anonymously. Just fill it out during church, pass it in, you know, into the collection basket. And, you know, lo and behold, those, just those, congregations and the people and then we had 15 million dollars in the major banks and people were kind of shocked that that's not a lot of money for a bank <laughs> for banks but it was a lot of money we were able to bring back the 300 people or so that had gathered the first time and the, again the leaders did a good job of uh how much money do you think we have in maryland national bank and people would you know call out you know whatever and then we would reveal how much they had. We had a big chart. So we decided that uh, we, you know, why, why should we bank at a place that wouldn't, you know, that doesn't respect us? Or wouldn't loan to you, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's the, what are we doing? What's the point? And I knew it wasn't a lot of money, but the publicity, I thought, would be, would be big and uh, important and be exciting for people to realize that they had something. You know, power comes in really two forms, right? Organized people or organized money. And we got good uh, news coverage on it, on the rally, the action, and how much money we had and what we were going to do. We would go to the banks and say, either you start to loan us, you know, make home improvement and home mortgage money to people in, you know, in the black community, or we're going to take our money out. And we're going to do it very dramatically. We'll have a big withdrawal days and we'll have people lined up at your bank taking money out. And we'll have the press and it'll be a zoo. We're going to create a zoo in front of your church. We'll be polite. We're not going to get arrested or anything like that. Uh, but, you know, it'll be a zoo because there'll be so many people out there. The first two banks, you know, were, were, were small banks that responded to us. And we met with them and it was just too easy. You know, we went in and they said, well, we don't, we, you know, we don't redline, but um, we're going to sign the agreement. And the agreement was for, for, we wanted dollar for dollar back. In other words, if we had, if we had $2 million in your bank, we wanted $2 million in loans back into the black community for home mortgages and home, home improvement loans. Oh, great. You know, people were so excited and everything. And when the first bank signed, I was excited. You know, I was excited. When the second bank 
sign, I was really worried. Everybody was excited, and I was worried because it was too easy. <laughs> we weren't getting a reaction, and we didn't have a lot of time to you know build this organization. People weren't paying dues because it wasn't doing anything, and a few local foundations given money weren't giving anymore because it wasn't doing anything. So uh, I said, well, we we, we got to force a big bank one of the big ones to, you know, negotiate with us. Everybody agreed. So we, uh, we finally got a meeting with one of the large banks, Provident Bank. I, I described this in, in, in the book. I mean, we, we went in to meet with the, uh, the head of the bank, the president, and we walked through the bank and all through these rooms, and we, we wind up in a room in the basement. And then he came down, and he was very friendly, very friendly. And so people started to you know, loosen up. He kind of broke the tension and, and tension's important sometimes. He's very nice. And we go, we go around the room and we introduce ourselves and he lands on this priest, uh, Josephite priest. Josephites are a Catholic order that, uh, dedicated to working in, in uh, African American parishes. They were founded for that reason. And so he landed and the priest was a very nice guy. Father McKenna, and he he stops the Father McKenna. He says, "Oh, Father, you, you're, you're a priest." Well, he starts going on about you know uh, how proud he is of his nephew and what a serious Catholic he is. He sort of uh, wows the priest, Father McKenna, and they start for about ten minutes talking about seminary and the process of discernment of and, and, I'm, and people are enjoying the conversation. These are, you know, working people. They're not, you know, protesters. And I'm going crazy. I'm about the working. president was fairly skilled here. Absolutely. And, I, and I'm trying to nudge the president, a woman named Miss Douglas, you know, passing her little notes. Stop this, you know. <laughs> Stop this love fest. Stop it. She shakes her head yes to me, but then she can't do it. She says, first of all, that was her priest. So she doesn't know how to interrupt him. It's too much confrontation. Yeah, it'd be rude and all that. And I know we don't have much time left. If we don't get this bank, you know, we're going to, we're just going to, we had three, four months of money left. So uh, as I described in the book, I just started banging on the table with my fists. Everybody just looked at me like, what? You know, what? And I just kept banging because I couldn't think of what to say. <laughs> I just had to interrupt it in some way. And he looked at me and he said, you know, something like, what's the matter? Are you okay? Or whatever. And all of the the leaders were looking at me too, like, you know, you lost your mind, you know. And I said, we didn't come here to talk about the seminary. And we didn't come here to talk about the priesthood. We came here to talk about the fact that you don't make loans into the African-American community. And you may be a good Catholic. That's not for, you know, us to judge. But by discriminating against us, you're not being, you know, to something to that extent. Put it right back on the issue at hand. Right. And uh, finally, I said, you've wasted 20 minutes. We only have 15, 10 minutes left to negotiate. Are you going to tell us if you're going to meet our demand or, or are you not? And normally, I wouldn't speak as an organizer. It's really the leader's organization, and you work and develop them to do the negotiating and speaking. But this was a case where, you know, we had two months left. The people were not experienced and so on. So. So he looks at me and he says, uh, we're getting to know each other. I said, well, we, we, we don't, we're not here to get to know each other. We have our friends, you have your friends. Are you going to agree to our, you know, demand or not? And the guy just, I don't know, he lost it. Not used to being treated that way by his inferiors. Exactly. And so he gets really red in the face. And he said, who are you to tell me what to do? And anyway... If then he looks at the crowd and he says, I don't know what they were listening politely, but he looks at them and he says, and if you people, you know, would only, you know, work harder or something like that. And well, you people is a bad thing to say to African-American people. It's like, you know, just under N word, you know, and it just stopped everybody. You different people. That's right. <laughs> That's right. You, you know, no good people, you know, you Outside, like I said, outside the N word, you couldn't say anything better for me, you know, better for us. And it just, everybody got stopped. 
it went from such a nice conversation to, well, this guy's nothing but a damn racist, you know. Oh, one of the leaders that was had been a, had, had fought in three wars. He was a colonel, retired. World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. He was anything but a radical. <laughs> he he just looked at the guy and he said, "Who are you talking to? You know, I'm a, a, a colonel in the army. And this person's a teacher, whatever. And he said, I'm, you know." And then he, I thought to myself, "Ooh, thank God, this is great. <laughs> this is this is." Oh man, this is good. You know, this is, I thought we were dead and now we're, you know. And so, uh, Ms. Douglas, who was the uh, chairperson, and uh, it was her priest that was, you know, in this conversation, got really uh, upset. And after Mr. Bates was the colonel talked, she said, Well, we're leaving. We know exactly now, you know, who you are and how you're going to respond. She took everybody outside. And we always evaluate at the end of an action, a meeting like, you know, what happened? We planned this. Did it work? What didn't work? What, what do we learn from it? And you do it immediately after. But people were confused. You know, first they were, they were angry at him. But then they were also angry at me. We went back to a church hall and we, you know, we talked it through and people realized what had happened. And so we decided we would just go after him and, uh, I had done this tactic before in uh, Milwaukee. We lined up at the bank at 12 o'clock. This was a downtown bank. If you, if you worked downtown, you had an hour for your lunch, you know, for the workers at noon. And so you had to go cash your check so you'd have money for the week or for the month, either way. And uh, you only had an hour to get lunch and get to the bank and get your money, you know, deposit your uh, paycheck. And so we lined up about 1130, about 100 people at the bank, and we were going to turn dollars into pennies. And if we did that, you know, no, no actual customer would be able to, within an hour, get their, deposit their check and get money. And uh, it was just quite a scene. So you had like two lines. One was African American, one was white, but the white were behind us. And there were police and uh, with dogs. It was it was crazy. They way overreacted, the the bank and the cops. And uh, you know we tied up the lines, uh, turning dollars into pennies. You, you would count the pennies. You get to ninety nine, and you would drop the pennies. So you had to start all over again. And it, there was chaos outside because people were upset because they needed to get into the bank. The police having overreacted because we said what we were going to do to get the press there. 12 cops and four dogs, and it was just crazy. They brought a cop in, you know, into the bank to say, see what's going on, what are we going to do? And the cops said, well, what am I supposed to do? You know, well, you know, arrest them. He said, you know, you can't, can't arrest people for making change. They had those little walkie-talkies on there that they wear over their shoulder. The sergeant, whoever, from the station house, we could hear them because there were three of us, uh, four of us, the leaders and myself, uh, around the cop and the, the security guard. And you hear this, you know, with static, uh, what's going on? What's the status of the situation? <laughs> what was happening? Because he had a lot of cops, you know, tied up. And the guy says, well, I don't know. There's a lot of people in this bank making change. And then you hear over the walkie-talkie, are you crazy? I had 12 cops and four dogs tied up in a bank because people are making change. Well, you get the hell out of there or whatever, you know. So they all left and the uh, bank people didn't know what to do. When are you going to leave? Never until this guy comes down and agrees to negotiate with us. The president agrees to negotiate with us. And so finally they go upstairs and uh, they tell the guy what's going on. All of our, our customers were pissed off. Uh, the security guard made a mistake in the bank and he got mad at the press trying to come in and he pushed a cameraman and broke a, broke a window and a cameraman didn't get hurt, but he was like, you know, shook up. That made the press you know, angry. And so it was just, uh, so finally the president said, have three or four of them, whatever, their leaders come up. And we did. It was very tense, but he agreed to meet and, uh, and talk about our demand. And we met couple of weeks later and he he agreed he signed and he came out in front of you know a lot of people we had brought down 
to say that, oh, you know, we had some misunderstandings, but now we're going to work together. And so the agreement was that they would make loans into the black community, meet with us every three months to report on, are they really doing it? In which neighborhoods and what, you know, how much, how many loans and how much. And then uh, every other bank uh, agreed. So you were able to change the practice to some degree and use it as something to build your organization. Exactly. Exactly. That's what built the organization. We would, we would have been dead. And then we were able to go on and take on auto insurance companies and we, you know, doing the same practice, you know, then we were on our way. We were able to grow a lot and build is 43 years old, something like that, 44 years old. When it's had it. And it's had some really wonderful successes. That's cool. At the beginning of the book, you talk about a couple universal principles that you've derived from a lifetime of organizing. Can you describe that quickly? The whole idea behind organizing is to get power, the ability to act. I think the Spanish word for power is poder, to be able. And low-income communities or communities of color oftentimes don't have uh, the ability to act. Or working people when they're trying to organize unions. It's universal. And the way you get it in the public arena, the ability to act, is either you were born wealthy and you have a lot of money and so you can act because you, know, you got all that money, or you're in some kind of position, like a mayor, a CEO, that gives you power, ability to act. But if you don't have those two things, then you either get the only two ways, other ways to get it that I think uh, you know is available to you is you can organize people that you can deliver with a focus on a consistent basis, or you organize money that you can deliver on a consistent basis. And so that's a universal. I mean, power is a universal. It's not about influence. It's not. It, you have to have power. Otherwise, you have no ability. To, uh, understood that way acting like a crazy person, but to give you the ability to act. And power is a universal. Self-interest is a universal, uh, which is really of selfishness. It's, if you break the word down, it's self-inter-essa, self-between being. If you're going to have power, you have to have a lot of, you're going to have to be in a lot of relationships. And it's going to be around interests that are shared. Uh, but you've got to get into relationship, and that's the way you build your power. Because we're going to build our power not just through money. You know, I mean, we have money, but not a lot of money. Uh, when you look at our institutions, but what we do have is the is the is you know a lot of people potentially. But you have to understand their self interest, and you have to be in relationship. Understanding self interest is a major universal. The the way to get to understand people's self-interest as a universalist is, is around learning how to do individual relational meetings. It's a one-to-one -one conversation between two people where you're exploring your interests and your story. You're trying to get a story from a person. When I meet someone for the, for the first time, I tell them about myself some. You know, I try to make the conversation about 70% they're talking and about 30% I am. It's about them. But it's not an interview. It's the opposite of an interview, really. And I try to get uh, them to tell some kind of story that doesn't have to be a deep story at first, uh, but something about how they grew up, how, whatever I can pull out and get some connection with them, which th then allows me to share a story about myself. And so the individual meeting is a universal. Recognition is a universal that I talked about. Action to get a reaction is a universal. I used to go to demonstrations when I was younger, and you could be out there, and it would be like a good cathartic experience, but then since there was no one to, you were just demonstrating, right? You weren't articulating some demand. Yeah, and there wasn't somebody there then to respond back. You'd go home feeling kind of empty. An action is to get a reaction. As I said, you know, recognition the drive to be respected as opposed to liked in the public arena. I mean, we all, I don't care what people say, most people want to be liked. 
you know, you'll come across people who say, oh, I don't care if people like me. It's really not true. <laughs> Most of us want to be liked to some degree or other. And in your private life in particular, you want to be liked. You know, you want your wife at least to like you or your husband to at least like you or your kids or whatever, friends. Obviously, you want them to respect you too, but you really want to be more or less liked. In your public life, more or less you want to be respected because without respect, you can't get very far. So those, those, are, those are, you know. Uh, lessons learned. You know, yeah, lessons learned. That's right. Uh, things organize around issues instead of problems. Those are the lessons I, I learned and I hope through the stories try to uh, express so that people get it. You were able to tell these stories in the book very succinctly and and engagingly. I think I understand a lot more of your capability by having read it and a lot more I think of universal principles of how you get people together to make change. And that's such an important part of improving our world. Is there anything else that you want to say about your career or book? No, other than uh, I love my career. You know, I've, I was in a lot of good fights. Best thing about it, probably, I mean, other than things we accomplished, great, you know, but uh, great people. I met some terrific people, people that, were real leaders, but no one would ever know them. I mean, if, if they hadn't gotten involved in organizing, uh, in the organizations, I should say. Just the amount of wonderful people that I that I came across on, uh, from all backgrounds and uh, gave me a, a very rich life. Not much more important than the people you work with and for. That's it. Exactly. My great colleagues and uh with N4. That's right. Arnie, it's a, an honor and a pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, anything else you want to say? No, thank you. That was Arnie Graff. You can find his book at actapublications.com slash lessons learned. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.